I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest is Jack Schlachter, a PhD physicist who worked at Los Alamos National Laboratory in New Mexico for over three decades, also at Brookhaven National Laboratory in New York, as well as two organizations based in Vienna, Austria, the International Atomic Energy Agency and the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty Organization. Dr. Schlachter's training was as an experimentalist creating and diagnosing plasmas, high temperature mixtures of electrons and ions with applicability to nuclear fusion, a potentially carbon neutral source of nearly unlimited energy. At Los Alamos, he served as division leader of the physics division and later of the theoretical division, the only individual to have held both roles in the history of the lab. These positions involved the responsibility for budgets in excess of $100 million and the management of hundreds of scientists, technicians, administrators, students, and postdoctoral assistants. Jack is also a rabbi, having been ordained in 1995 by Rabbi Gershon Winkler of Cuba, New Mexico. He has held Jewish leadership roles both in Los Alamos and in Santa Fe, as well as serving as a visiting rabbi in Vienna and Beijing. In addition to his current pulpit in Santa Fe, he conducts life cycle events such as weddings, barn bar mitzvahs and funerals under the banner of Judaism for your nuclear family. So Rabbi Jack, welcome to Delving In. Thank you very much, Stuart. So obviously you are a multi-talented and multifaceted person, uh, not just a physicist and rabbi, but also a devoted husband and father of two successful adult children, a voracious reader with wide-ranging interests, a singer and an orator, all in the context of outstanding social skills and a down-to-earth, non-self-aggrandizing manner. You are, the, you are the proof that all these outstanding qualities can coexist in a single person, which brings me to my first question. One version of, in the American popular imagination is that brilliance and social skills are somehow mutually exclusive, and that depictions of famous scientists thereby need to be altered to fit that stereotype. For example, in the movie The Imitation Game, Alan Turing was depicted as an irascible loner with poor social skills and no sense of humor, none of which was true. In your long career at Los Alamos, you had the chance to get to know either directly or indirectly hundreds of brilliant physicists, as well as the originators, I mean, this would be, I guess, through stories, the originators of nuclear physics. Are there any generalities or typologies, at least, that hold true for them as a group? And in terms of social skills, I imagine that many of them were nonconformists, but that's different than not having the social skills to begin with. So that's a complicated question, Stuart. And first of all, thank you for being so generous with your introduction. I think it was a little bit over the top, but I'll take it anyway. There are people who would probably laugh uh, if uh, they were told that I was described as having social skills. So I I don't know that <laughs> that I pride myself on that. Um, I live in Los Alamos, and I've lived in Los Alamos, New Mexico, for the bulk of my adult life. Los Alamos is not noted for social skills. It is a town of scientists, largely. And scientists, I think, can be characterized as lacking some social skill uh, set that normal people would have. I think really what it is for me is that I was trained as a physicist, and I have the arrogance of a physicist, meaning whatever the subject is, I'm sure I can learn it because I learned physics. So how how hard can can whatever it is, brain surgery be, right? But... Uh, <laughs> But physicists, I think, tend to look at the world with a lot of skepticism and, and not take things at face value. 
And as a result, I think that can lead to abrasive uh, social interactions, challenging people when normal social norms would say, just let that go, even if you don't agree with it. I think physicists tend to question things. My physics training began at Caltech, and I started at the age of 17 as an undergraduate at what I claim is the finest scientific academic institution in the world. That's the pride of my uh, alumnus uh, situation uh, poking through. But at Caltech, people were really into science. That was really the air that we breathed at Caltech was a science air. And, and people learned to challenge everything. I remember being at a seminar where two people got into it in the audience, had nothing to do with the speaker anymore. The two people were just shouting at each other, disagreeing about something. That's probably not good social skills. I see. So they're so passionate about the ideas that they forgot about the personal aspect? Yeah, I think that's probably true. And, and I think there is a a personal side that that may not have been developed as much in many scientists. And I probably fit that category too, though I've tried to work at it. Well, I, I guess there was some danger about making assumptions about you, given I've only met you twice in person. But I was you know, very impressed with your uh, rabbinical presence in Santa Fe. And you seem to be able to talk socially very easily after the service. Thank you. Th thank you. It could be that you, could, could be that you underrate yourself, possibly. I, well, I don't know, but I also know that um, what little I'm aware of as far as definitions of introverts and extroverts, I'm probably quite introverted. And as evidenced from my book collection, if you will, I'm happier in the basement of our house with my books than with lots of people around. I think I derive my energy differently than than uh, than a, an extrovert would. All right, so before we leave the topic, it might be helpful to hear uh, some anecdotes of uh, either people that you knew at Los Alamos or heard about in, in, on this topic about social skills and, and also maybe also humor. I guess you don't necessarily have to have the greatest social skills to still be funny. For some reason, the individual who comes to my mind first is an individual who was at Los Alamos during the Manhattan Project era, 1943 to 1945, but then left as soon as the war was over. Uh, this is Richard Feynman, and he went uh, first to Cornell and then to Caltech. So he was a professor of physics at, at Caltech when I was a student there. And I, I really was privileged to take a full year class from him. And my only interaction with him directly in that class is that I convinced every one of my fellow students to sign up for this class. It was a senior quantum mechanics class. So pretty sophisticated physics for an undergraduate. And I convinced all my friends to sign up for the class because I said this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to take this class from Richard Feynman. So they signed up for it. But the non-physics majors realized within probably the first hour that this class was way over their head and they weren't going to survive. And so at Caltech at that time, you had what were called drop cards. You had to take the card up to a professor and have the professor sign to say you were withdrawing without any penalty. 
So I had one friend who, at for the second class, asked me to take his drop card. He didn't want to go. He wasn't going to be in the class anymore. So I took his drop card and handed it to Feynman, and he signed the drop card, and I took it away to my friend. And then two days later, for the next lecture, another friend wanted me to take the drop card. So I took that <laughs> to Feynman. And the third time that I took a drop card to Feynman, he looked at me and he said, haven't you dropped this class already? And I said, no, I'm actually <laughs> taking the class. These are my friend's drop cards. But he was quite a character, and he had a huge influence on the atmosphere at Caltech, and he'd had a huge in influence on the atmosphere at Los Alamos during the war years and even afterwards. And he came to Los Alamos for that 40th anniversary that we were talking about earlier and gave a wonderful talk at at Los Alamos about yet another topic, something that he hadn't talked about much before. It had to do with how small can you make a computer. And here today, now, that that was 40 years ago, another 40 years have passed, but his early work in that field was hugely important for the course of research on, on small computers. Yeah, I, I've seen videos of Richard Feynman online, and he seemed like quite a character, very charismatic. Hugely charismatic. Very, very unique. Yeah. And I think, I think his Long Island accent was exaggerated. He, he cultivated that <laughs> image of uh, being, you know, the son of a truck driver type thing. I see. It's sort of like Billy Crystal with, with his Brooklyn accent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and what was it like to work with, uh, with physicists? I mean, hundreds of them and, and being in charge of them, so to speak. What, what did, were they difficult to, to manage? It was a pleasure and an honor to manage the physicists that I worked with at Los Alamos. I really was privileged to have a, a, the bulk of my career at a, a top-notch scientific institution, and it allowed me to interact with smart people on a regular basis, day after day. Yes, there were problems to deal with and some individuals with issues, but by and large, Asking a scientist, what do you work on, just lights them up. They love to talk about their own work. And by the time I was managing organizations with hundreds of people, the physics division and then the theoretical division, there's no scientist of kind of normal caliber who would have been able to understand everything that was going on in the organization. And I considered that that was me, too. I, I didn't know what everybody was doing, but I like to ask questions, and I like to ask people what they were working on. And they usually responded very positively that way. And that did build a bridge to the individuals. When, when I then needed them to do something like, we've got a serious security issue or a serious safety issue that we need to address, people generally were very responsive uh, because they felt I was on their side. I wanted to help support their science. And were this, by and large, were the scientists who worked there uh, kind of delighted to be there? Did they, were they tickled pink to, to have landed a job there? Or, or were they, did they have such big egos that said, of course, of course I work here? There are some prima donnas who work at the laboratory. Well, there was a scientist I remember of whom it was said, he's smarter than you think, but not as smart as he thinks. <laughs> And, and I think there were probably a few people like that, but generally I think people were uh, appreciated that working at Los Alamos was a great opportunity. I will say Los Alamos 
is a large scientific institution. There are probably well over 10,000 employees at Los Alamos today. That's grown quite a bit since uh, the time I arrived, probably by a factor of two or so. It probably was maybe four or 5,000 when I first arrived, and now over 10,000. And it has a mission. The, the laboratory has a mission. It's part of the National Nuclear Security Administration, and it has a mission that is a defense-related mission. So pure science is a little bit of a fringe activity at the laboratory, and I worked with a lot of pure scientists who struggled to get funding to do the work they wanted to do, but their resources at Los Alamos are great. The tools are great. The budgets are, are generally healthy. And so I think people realize that they had other opportunities. They could have been academics and worked at a, at a university. But the thing that Los Alamos brings to the table that universities don't is that people can work collaboratively on very complex problems with teams of people that you can't really assemble at a university. Universities tend to be every person for his or herself. And at a national laboratory, the problems are are grand challenges, and the problems often require partnering across multiple disciplines. And the lab has tremendous breadth of scientific capability. I remember one time there was an issue I was interested in, and it had to do with the fuel rods in a nuclear reactor. And within a matter of days, a few handful of days, I called together a meeting of 25 people each of whom was expert in his or her field and brought them together to work on a particular problem that wasn't the problem they were working on, but they had expertise that they could bring to bear on it. And that is a tremendous strength of Los Alamos National Laboratory. So I guess one way to put it is that you had a dream job in a sense. I did. I did. And you know, it's interesting. When I graduated from Caltech that summer, I worked at the Jet Propulsion Lab, which is managed for the government by, by Caltech, and it's physically quite close to the campus. So I had a summer job at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and I remember sitting out on the lawn, eating lunch with some friends that summer, talking just kind of, what is it that you plan to do with your career. And I was embarking on graduate school at that time. I was going to be heading off to the University of California at San Diego as a graduate student in physics. But I had already anticipated, because I remember this conversation, I said my dream job would be to be responsible for a large number of scientists working on interesting science. So I was already into what I would call vicarious science, the world did not lose the best physicist in the world when I ceased doing hands-on physics to do, <laughs> to do management. That, that was not a great loss to the world of physics. But I really enjoyed doing what we called line management at Los Alamos, having scientists work under, under me in an organizational structure. So it was a dream job. I also wanted to ask you about your family backgrounds intellectually especially, I mean, did your parents encourage both your Jewish and your scientific interests? And to use a little Yiddish, did they cavell about you? Did they boast about you and take pride in you? Somewhat to my embarrassment, uh, yes, they, they definitely had a huge influence on my trajectory. 
Both of my parents were supportive of me developing an interest in science and also were committed Jews and fostered me being involved in Jewish activity. So I credit them with both of those strands of my life, but I was immature enough not to enjoy their quelling and to to limit it as much as I could and not share with them things that I probably should have shared with them to give them that opportunity to fail. I just found it embarrassing, I think. And so I probably didn't do what I should have done. And, and they're both deceased now, so I can't quite make up for that one. And what were their professions? My mother was a housewife, and then when my youngest... I'm I'm the middle of three boys, so when my younger brother went off to uh, probably to middle school or so, and she had a little more time, uh, she went into secretarial work, and then she continued doing that for many years. My father was the first college graduate in the family, in the extended family, Uh, went to school on the GI Bill to finish college as an electrical engineer, and then worked for Motorola for the bulk of his professional life as an electrical engineer. He had a great interest in science, not professionally trained beyond his electrical engineering uh, profession, but self-taught in a lot of scientific areas and really helped foster my interest as well. I think I wanted to be an astronomer from the time I was about four years old. I think my parents bought me a telescope for Hanukkah when I was either four or five. So they definitely were nurturing that. And how many generations back did your family come from Europe? The story could almost be told that all four grandparents came over from the Pale of Settlement, but actually one grandmother was born uh, in the year after uh, her parents arrived in the United States. So so basically the, the normal Ashkenazic Jewish trajectory of people coming between the late 1800s and the early 1900s, and in my family situation, probably more the the early part of the 20th century, coming from the Pale of Settlement. So with this next section, let's talk a little bit about physics. Of course, it's not a uh, necessarily a physics audience. <laughs> this is a general audience. Uh, but let's talk about some of the cutting edge ideas in modern nuclear physics. I don't know if you're still attached to your experimentalist uh, topics of uh, fusion reactors. That's, I think, always an interesting topic because, you know, if such a thing really were possible, it would solve the global warming problem. So, I don't know, whichever you'd like to do, uh, you know, it strikes me, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, and you can sort of fold this into your, to the discussion, it seems that the after the development of the theories of relativity and quantum mechanics, we're sort of filling in details and sort of hoping for, for breakthroughs. But it, it, it sort of there was a kind of a heyday, you know, roughly corresponding, I guess, to the early part of the of the twentieth century, uh, where these major, major ideas were discovered or created or however you want to put it, and, and then we're searching for the next Einstein in a sense. I don't know that I would I would necessarily agree with that. But certainly there was a heyday of physics when in the late 1800s, I think people thought they knew everything there was to know about physics. And then suddenly everything changed in the early 20th century. We had tremendous advances in physics in that, in that era. I think we're still making those advances. 
And you had the giants of the fields back then. I mean, just only these legendary characters, you know, who many of whom worked at Los Alamos. That's true. That's true. But I don't think physics has stagnated. I think we see major advances still. It's often hard when you're in the midst of things to see exactly what's happening around. But I think quantum computing, for example, is a very exciting area. This is probably the third wave of artificial intelligence. It kind of has a heyday and then disappears for a while and it has another heyday. But we're in probably the third wave of that. And because of the advances in computing, I think major things are being done with with uh, artificial intelligence. So I think there are some very exciting things going on in the world of physics. I don't know that we're uh, in such a lull right now that uh, we're lacking the, the smart people to, to make uh, progress. I will comment a little bit about fusion uh, just because it's poking fun at myself a little bit. You know, when I entered the field of fusion as a graduate student, the dream of nuclear fusion as an energy source was 30 years in the future. And when I left the field 25 years later to do management, uh, it was 50 years in the future. So I think I set back the field significantly. No, nuclear fusion would be a wonderful solution to the world's energy needs. And it's just a very, very hard problem. There's a lot of physics. There's a lot of engineering. There's a lot of work to be done. And it motivated me to go into a professional career as a physicist, even though I had wanted to be an astronomer from very early on when I got to Caltech. Uh, I was quickly convinced that physics was at the top of the pyramid and astronomy was somewhere down below that. So I shifted gears and became a physicist. But I think that the promise of nuclear fusion is still out there. And one of the exciting things is that you have very wealthy people now who are plowing money into it as private capital, venture capital, that didn't exist when I was working in the fusion field. We were all dependent on government funding, and government funding was always hard to come by. But now I think some advances are being made because there's actually a fair amount of money going into the field. Okay, I'm going to throw a little bit of, of uh, technical physics in here and see if I can have this right. I, I read very recently the nuclear reaction in, in a fusion reactor uses deuterium, which is a kind of hydrogen that has a, a neutron, where it, which is different than the kind of fusion that's happening in the sun. No, it's actually the same. It's the same. Is it the same? Because I, I read that the ordinary that in the sun it's, well, of course, it's, the elements are so different because it's plasma, right? It's so hot. Okay, I, I take it back. I mean, it's it's fundamentally the same. What what people are trying to do in the laboratory is the easiest fusion reaction to demonstrate the capability. I think when years from now, long after you and I are just uh, this recording and no longer have a, <laughs> a presence physically on the planet, I think fusion will probably be done with other reactions but they require even more work to get to. And so that's not the first steps in in generating commercial fusion. But down the road, I think people talk about uh, protons uh, with boron as a fusion reaction because it has some real advantages. There are some exotic reactions, but the problem is that every one of those more exotic reactions requires higher temperatures and getting 
to the temperature for the simplest fusion reaction in the laboratory is hard enough. So it's close to what's going on in the sun. Yeah, I guess the main, one of the main difficulties is how do you keep your equipment from melting? So you use a magnetic field and so on, but even so, I mean, the, the, heat, the heat is just so unbelievable. Right, right. And, and actually, this is where, to a physicist, heat and temperature are not the same thing. And so if you don't have a lot of material, a, a cigarette ash is the best example of that. A cigarette ash is actually pretty low density. So there's not a lot of mass there. The temperature is high, but it doesn't hold a lot of heat. And so you don't melt your hand if an, if an ash drops on your hand because there's not a lot of heat. There's a lot of temperature, but there's not a lot of heat. And so the same thing in a magnetically confined fusion system. There's not a lot of heat, but there's a lot of temperature. And so you can, you can damage the materials, no question about it. And magnetic fields are used to try to prevent that from happening. I see. So just an everyday analogy would be aluminum foil that tends to not burn you because it's so thin. Right. There's not very much mass there. Right. There's not a lot of mass. So it doesn't hold a lot of heat, but the temperature can be high. Temperature is, is actually just a measure of the average speed of the, of the atoms or uh, molecules or, or, or ions if, if it's actually a plasma. So the average speed can be very, very high. So you don't want to have a collision between that particle and the wall because you can damage the wall or you can radiate the wall or radiate the wall, but there's not a lot of heat because there's not a lot of mass in there. Gotcha, because you're just using a tiny bit of hydrogen at a time. Right, right, right. It's tenuous plasmas. Well, that's one approach to fusion. That's the approach that I actually worked on in my career was magnetically confined plasmas. And, and I don't know if you're familiar with it, but the largest human experiment ever is being constructed in southern France. It is a magnetically confined fusion device, and it's billions and billions of dollars. I, I'm reminded that you mentioned Carl Sagan when we were talking before, so this is billions and billions of dollars, not billions and billions <laughs> of stars. But it's a huge, it's a huge investment, and, and it's a complicated way to go. And this is really just to demonstrate that it'll work. So we're a ways away. you have any predictions? Will it be accomplished, and if so, when? I think it's still decades away. But I do think that it's a positive sign that more people are aware now that there's a need to address climate change, there's a need to address energy needs, and that will help turn the tide, I think, about putting research into this field. One of the problems, this is now very much a subjective thing. You, you shouldn't write this down that this is gospel. But I think that what's happened in this country is that we find a solution and then we turn off research because now we have the answer. But oftentimes, a, the first solution is not the best solution. And that happened with nuclear fission. With, with the, the reactors that we have today, light water reactors that are different from fusion that I worked on, but, but light water fission reactors, that was a concept among many different concepts for harnessing the energy of fission reactions. And the problem is that because it worked, we stopped doing research on other approaches and now we're paying the price for that. At Los Alamos, when, when I first came to Los Alamos, there were a lot of different things that were looked at as fission approaches 
but that research dried up. Nobody wanted to put money into it because we had a working concept and people were generating energy with light water reactors, but light water reactors obviously have problems. And, and so it's unfortunate, I think. Problems meaning vulnerabilities to, to meltdowns, that kind of thing? Vulnerabilities, uh, problems involving fuel, well, avoiding problems like Fukushima and, uh, and, and other situations like that. There are ways to avoid that and still get energy from nuclear fission. And I'm actually passionate about nuclear fission as a stopgap source because fusion is a long ways away. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. It seems that uh, given the, the threats of global warming, that the problems of nuclear waste is, is not as dire as global warming. I think it can be addressed. I think it's a question of, of will. And, and also, I think looking at other options for generating energy with nuclear fission is still viable, but people have to put research in. You know, you just don't get to the engineered final design on day two. It's a long process of training people, of stimulating creative ideas, of having dead ends. I think Enrico Fermi, who's one of the giants who was at the Los Alamos during the Manhattan Project, Enrico Fermi is the one who said, you know, if you already know the answer, it's not an experiment. And so a lot of experiments fail. And when funding is limited, as it always is, how many failures are you willing to pay for? There's a there's a tension there. I guess you could use the Thomas Edison principle that you don't get to tungsten as the filament for an incandescent light bulb unless you try was it two thousand other materials first. Yeah, that's kind of an Edisonian approach that physicists don't necessarily subscribe to because if you put some thought into it, you can probably reduce the number of things that you try. But still, you don't know everything a priori, and there are going to be problems when you try to engineer anything. And you just have to try some things and see what happens. But when experiments are, are billions of dollars, you can't afford to do that too many times. Yeah, earlier you mentioned about quantum computing as a you know, breakthrough kind of technology. And I, I would imagine part of that is the ability to simulate all sorts of things, including physics, so that you don't actually have to do all of the experiments. I think that's true. But again, that's somewhat speculative, too, about where advances in quantum computing can take us. Right now, it's probably not the practical answer for things. But it's it's an exciting time in science. I, I don't think people are going to look back on this era and say we were lacking in the brilliant uh, scientists like Einstein and his colleagues of, of the early 20th century. Yeah, I, I certainly didn't mean to imply that uh, current physicists are any less adept or intelligent than the older ones. I mean, sometimes it's just a question of which ideas are, are ready for fruition and which ones aren't. I mean, Einstein didn't work by himself. I mean, he was borrowing on all, all sorts of uh, ideas from other physicists, and he happened to be the one who put it together. But, you know, maybe there's a kind of a period of time where there's a kind of a lull in, in the raw material, the, the raw intellectual material for a breakthrough. Well, I, I have to say that my generation uh, was encouraged to go into science because of the threat of the, of the Soviets. I, I'm a Sputnik scientist, if you will, in the sense that the Sputnik stimulated science training in schools. 
I think we lost that. I don't think we have the same interest of encouraging people to go into science that that we used to have and it will require that to take to generate the intellectual fodder if you will for uh, for great advances you have to have enough people going into science of course the intellectual giants of the past in physics were mostly foreign born and you know part of it was the um Nazi Germany expelling their Jewish scientists that uh, led to the just this incredible uh, wealth the United States of intellectual ability. And, and I think the academic centers of excellence shifted to the United States as, uh, as a consequence. It used to be that everybody in physics had to go to Europe to be trained. Oppenheimer, the first director of the laboratory, the scientific director of Los Alamos National Laboratory, Oppenheimer went to Europe to be trained. But then post-war, this country became a, a center for physics excellence and physics training because you need to have a bunch of people. And as you say, a lot of them came to this country and then, then that builds on itself. It's a runaway situation in a positive sense. But we need to encourage that. I, I still think that science education could use a shot in the arm in this country. So it sounds like the kind of center of gravity for physics has drifted back to Europe to a large extent. Not completely, of course. But, you know, some of these gigantic colliders and so on, the CERN and others. Well, so, so this country lost the opportunity to do that, right? It, we had the superconducting super collider as a project that got killed. And it was just felt that it's too much money and not enough of a payoff. But the payoff can be intangible. The payoff can be exciting a generation of people to go into science and then creating that intellectual capital in this country. So, yeah, I know there are lots of needs and there's finite amount of money, but I do think that science is a, a valuable thing. It's intellectual curiosity, right? It's trying to encourage people to use their minds at their fullest, which which is our other topic for today, right? I mean, I think that it's not a coincidence that, that there are Jewish scientists. I think the idea of intellectual pursuit being a worthwhile human endeavor has been baked into Judaism for a long, long time. Yeah, and we'll get to that after the next break, just coming up. But it seems to me that one of the things that happened to discourage scientific involvement or scientific study is winning the Cold War, <laughs> you know, that, uh, and winning the space race. And you know, I, I remember when I was a kid, it just seemed like, oh, gosh, we're going to go to the moon. We're going to we're going to establish a colony on the moon. We're going to go to Mars. I mean, just the, the the universe, or at least the solar system, was our oyster, and and a lot of that was cut back. I mean, now we're seeing at least explorations robotically of the outer planets and so on. But it does seem that the, some of the, some of the uh, wind went out of the sails. I, I agree with you completely. I, I think that's true. And again, we have domestic issues to address. It's not always the case that because money is spent on a domestic issue, now you don't have money to spend on something else. But I think people didn't see the reason they didn't the the raison d'etre if you will for stimulating scientific advances was somewhat gone you're right once the cold war was over well if it's really over we still have threats yeah right it may be restarting huh we we still have threats out there we should not fool ourselves i i would guess you may be the only physicist from Los Alamos is also a rabbi, is that right? Or have, was there one other? <laughs> yeah, no, if, 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 you, uh, if you narrow it down to Los Alamos, then it's probably a pretty small <laughs> set, yes. 
Right, but I think there are other physicist rabbis. There are, there are. I used to say I was the best gymnast in our calculus class in high school, right? If you narrow it down <laughs> enough, you know. The... <laughs> I see. I wasn't a very good gymnast, but I, but I was in calculus class. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, my, my, my son was studying at a yeshiva in Jerusalem, a modern Orthodox yeshiva called Nachon Shlomo, and his, his favorite uh, Talmud teacher had a PhD in physics. So, you know, I know it's not unheard of. Um, I, I bet it's more unheard of to have a PhD in biology and also be a, a rabbi. That might be a little more unusual. And, and the reason I say that is I think that uh, biology uh, leads to atheism more surely than any other science. <laughs> That's that's a fascinating that's a fascinating observation. I don't know that I've heard that, and I don't know uh, you know that I can see that exactly. But but I will tell you, physics does not need to lead to atheism, because in my in my view, what physicists are trained to do is to look carefully at the world around them and to ask questions. And the world is an amazing thing. And I don't know why that would be inconsistent with the idea that there's something else amazing. I mean, it's just a beautiful world. We're, we're really privileged to, to be here. And uh, anyway, uh, not that I am a deep theologian. And if you were to ask me to articulate my understanding of the divine, it would be so murky and fuzzy that people would go away screaming, you know, the guy must be an atheist because he can't articulate <laughs> at all what he's, what he's talking about. But, you know, I do think there's something beyond us. Yeah, and and Judaism is is a little different from uh, Christianity, let's say, in, in that theology doesn't have to be all that important. You know, practice uh, the Jewish practice and Jewish community can be really the predominant uh, draw. Uh, but I did did want to mention also just about the, there were so many Jews in nuclear physics, but almost all of them were very secular and not all that identified as Jews, even as they were discriminated against. For their Jewish ethnicity, both in Nazi-occupied Europe as well as even in the United States at the, in the earlier part of the century, uh, there was quite a bit of anti-Semitism, uh, exclusion from clubs and hotels and so on and so forth. But that was kind of like, I imagine, experienced as a kind of inconvenience, and, <laughs> you know, and not, a, not an identity builder. And if it were, it would be a very negative one. So I, I just was curious if what your feeling was about the physicists at Los Alamos, I don't know if, how many of them are still Jewish, but I imagine they're still mostly pretty assimilated. And I was wondering if you felt alienated by their alienation from, from, from their own Judaism. Well, that's an interesting question about today. Los Alamos probably doesn't have a large Jewish population. I think that's in part because the laboratory is more international in character than it used to be. And and there are a lot of people in large population countries that are becoming scientists. So, of course, China and India being the uh, the obvious uh, examples where there's not a large Jewish population at all. I think it was the European Jewish uh, model that we think of as the origins of Los Alamos and the Manhattan Project. And, and there's not much of that anymore. So I come back to my Caltech experience just because there's an amusing anecdote that 
probably in the 50s at Caltech, a third of the student body was Catholic, a, a third was Protestant, and a third was Jewish. And they did the same survey many years later, and a third was Catholic, a third was Protestant, and a third was atheist. And it was probably exactly the same <laughs> makeup, but it's just that the Jews had all become atheists. So, so I don't know that we still see so much in the way of a large Jewish population. And, and certainly the, the Nobel Prize is a trailing indicator, right? People don't get Nobel Prizes uh, in their 30s, and they now are getting them in their 80s. And so it's a trailing indicator, right? So the, 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 there's a large number of, of Jewish scientists winning Nobel Prizes, but I don't think that's telling us much about what the future holds. So when people express surprise that you're both a scientist and a rabbi, um, how do you respond? Well, I, I gave a talk one time about how can I combine my science and Judaism without seeing a conflict, if you will. And I guess, and I'm not being falsely uh, humble here or whatever, uh, I don't think I'm a deep thinker in that regard. And in some sense, I approach Judaism with a questioning mind, just like I approach the world with a questioning mind. That's the physics background. But I don't see such a dichotomy between the two. I interact with a lot of scientists just because I live in Los Alamos. So that part is not so weird. And Los Alamos has surprisingly a large number of religious institutions. I think people are sometimes surprised when they see that, but there's a lot of churches in Los Alamos, one synagogue, but a lot of churches. And I think that there may not be the same dichotomy that, that we would expect. So at least in Los Alamos, I don't see a big issue there. Is there something in the uh, way you practice Judaism that makes it especially compatible with science? I mean, can you imagine other forms of Judaism that would be less compatible would be another way of, of putting it? And I guess this opens up the topic of how, how, do, how do you regard the relationship between religion and science in general? I mean, you, you said that you don't, you don't see that it's incompatible, but obviously there are versions of religion the word is. So this may be dodging the question, I don't know, um, but I can tell you that my kind of a world view of Judaism, if if I had to summarize it in in a simple phrase, I think there are there are different approaches to Jewish practice. One is this is what we're supposed to do. Just do it. Don't ask questions. Just do it. That clearly wouldn't work well for me because I was trained to ask questions about things. There's another approach that says that's the way people used to do it. None of it makes sense. Just throw it out. And that probably wouldn't work for me either. I think the hardest but most intellectually satisfying approach is to say there might be some value in these practices. It may not be what originally prompted the practice to be put in place, but let's see if we can't struggle with it to identify a way in which it's meaningful in a 21st century context. And that's the way I think I try to approach Jewish practice, and it's the way I try to approach Jewish study as well. It's intellectually satisfying for me, just like doing physics is intellectually satisfying, that it's a challenge. 
So for example, I'm, I'm woefully behind on preparing for a Torah discussion for this coming Shabbat, which is on my calendar for as soon as we are done. I need to get in gear on that. But I'm struck by taking passages that are seemingly not valuable to us today, and just written in a completely different context thousands of years ago, no real relationship to our modern lives, and trying to figure out a way to make them meaningful. And I have latched on to something, just so you know, I'm not, I'm not totally panicked about this coming Saturday, because I found a commentary from about 800 years ago that I think is totally relevant today, and it hinges on one letter in, in one verse of the Torah of this week's portion. And to me, that's just so satisfying to take the text, to um, have the congregation look at the text and look carefully and see that there's a letter there that may not make a lot of sense, but it opens up a whole question. And I'll tell you what that question is. That question is, do we in the 21st century, now that we have the luxury, if you will, of a homeland for Jewish people in the state of Israel, do we have an obligation to go live there? And I think that's a very contemporary topic. And do we have an obligation to be supportive of that country is obviously relevant in today's news. And a lot of that can be expounded on from this one letter in one word about is that an and or is it a therefore? You know, what is that letter really telling us? Right, because we're getting to the part of the Torah where the people are about to enter the land, right? Correct, and that's exactly what it is. And, and the debate hinges in the Middle Ages on whether it is a commandment for us to live in the land of Israel. And that's still a contemporary topic. And I have several friends who are Israeli-born who live in this country, and what status are they in, according to your interpretation of this? Uh, so I think one can take the text and and make it come alive by connecting it to contemporary issues, but it requires some intellectual struggle. It would be easy to throw the text out and say, we'll just chop out the parts of the book that don't seem like they're relevant anymore. Or it would be easy to just say, just follow it and don't ask questions. But to me, the more the most fun thing, and the thing that makes me come alive, and hopefully makes the congregation come alive as well, is to connect the two. So do you subscribe to the idea that religion and science have sort of special tasks that are kind of dichotomous? So science is talking about, or not just talking about, but trying to discover what is, whereas religion, for, to a large extent, is talking about what should be, you know, so ethics. Yeah, I think you're right. I think science does not tell us ethics. There, when I prepared for that talk, which is not at my fingertips, so I'd have to prepare again uh, for this talk that I did about science and religion, I did cite some Richard Feynman essays, and, and I believe that he's making that same point, that science really doesn't comment on ethics. So there's no dichotomy from that point of view. You're right. Now, how about the issue about a personal God? I mean, it seems that if you don't have a personal God, if you have a creator God or a God that's sort of a vague kind of spiritual force or something, then there's much less difficulty, I think, making that compatible with science. But if you think of a God as intervening in everybody's personal lives and making sure that everyone gets what they deserve and that kind of thing, 
I, I mean, that's rather, it's a probably a rather simplistic view of God anyway, but then I think you have more, more difficulty. I mean, even if you have to invoke the, the afterlife, you know, that's when everything gets uh, balanced correctly. So that's interesting that you say that, because I, I often tell people that that is not my Jewish approach, if you will, that everything gets balanced in the afterlife, that in fact, I would argue that Judaism largely focuses on this life because we really don't know the answer to what happens in the afterlife. If we dwell on that too much, we miss the opportunity to live this life. The image is often the person lying in the gutter. Uh, you could reach out a hand and pull them out of the gutter, which I think is the Jewish approach. Or you could say that person's life will get resolved in the afterlife and leave them there. And I think the more uh, Jewish approach, is, if you will, is to leave afterlife speculation for the afterlife. Having said that, one of the things I love about Judaism is talking about prayer, because it's, as, as you know, I, I mean, you're obviously very knowledgeable about all this, but the, the word for prayer is a reflexive word, and it means that it's really an internal process, and for that reason, it, it becomes a personal God, whether that's what people really mean by a personal God or not, because the very act of praying is an internal process that changes us. And so I don't know how that necessarily is incompatible with science because we work on ourselves and, and that's maybe that is part of the personal God thing. Well, it sounds like you have a quite a modern uh, approach. I mean, modern, I don't mean necessarily super modern, but, you know, the last 100, 150 years or so, uh, kind of post-enlightenment, where you really can totally embrace your, your scientific worldview and your love of Judaism and find it to be quite compatible. It's a privilege, I think, to be living now and to have pursued these two careers. It's actually been a delight for me. And, I, and it was fortuitous. I tell people I know what it's like to be alienated from Judaism because I post bar mitzvah at the age of roughly 14, I just decided I didn't need Judaism anymore. Physics had taken over as my religion, if you will. And I went off to Caltech and I went off to graduate school and I really had no connection with my Jewish roots. And then I came to Los Alamos at the age of 25 as a graduate student not knowing a single person in town. And what saved me, if you will, and I don't mean that in the, in the kind of... <laughs> uh, but, but what really what worked out for me is that I thought, well, I guess I could do worse than go to the synagogue and meet some people there. And that's what brought me back to, to Judaism. It was approaching Judaism with a clean slate as an adult and saying, you know, maybe I didn't understand what I was throwing out because I'd never really learned it. And maybe, to be intellectually honest, I actually need to learn something so that I can throw it out. So, so that's, what, that's what helped. So a little serendipity doesn't, uh, doesn't hurt. Doesn't hurt. What do you think about physicists that, uh, in, at least in the past, talked about particles is like the God particle or the mind. Of, Einstein talked about the mind of God and, uh, you know, that kind of language. It's interesting that, that physicists are sometimes drawn to that kind of language. Do you identify with that? 
well, I think uh, in, with that same arrogance of physics, at least as a profession, not me personally, but I think physicists are smart people and, and they can make those connections in ways that aren't so obvious to others. I think this God particle idea, you know, it's just that people are looking for something that lends meaning to the world around them and searching for a particle that somehow gives mass to particles is is an amazing thing right or understanding interconnectedness which is my my awareness of what einstein is talking about was this kind of interconnectedness of the world and i think uh, that's a pretty amazing way to look at it again i haven't looked real deeply at that yeah, I think that's a misunderstanding about just because of the, the term relativity that people don't understand. It's not relativity as in like relative values or relative truth. It's it's about, as you say, relationships so that, that in time and space are not absolute in, in terms of having one absolute reference point, but that uh, movement, movement and time and, and dimension are, are all interrelated and affect one another. And the observer plays a role. The observer plays a role in physics, and, and I think that's, that's uh, compatible with Judaism, too. So have you had conversations with clergy of other religions on the topic of science and religion? Los Alamos is, is an odd place, as I said before. So the overlap between science and religion occurs probably far more often in Los Alamos than it might elsewhere. Early on, when I was getting deeply involved in Judaism, there was a colleague of mine who called together anybody who was clergy or supporting clergy in a, in a very active way at the laboratory. He called them together. So laboratory employees, largely scientists, who either were ordained or who somehow were doing some very high-level lay leadership. And there were a surprising number of people. I was the only Jewish person in that group, but, but I was surprised how many deacons and ordained ministers and, and were scientists working at the lab. And we used to get together periodically, but I don't remember us actually talking about science and religion and any of those overlap. There is a group in Los Alamos right now that has been going on, I think, for quite a while that focuses exclusively on this issue and how they hold talks on a regular basis. I think I spoke at one of those sessions, but I don't go to those generally. I'm on the mailing list, so I, I see that they have announcements about talks. Well, this is probably our last question. Your rabbinic mentor, Gershon Winkler, was known for his spiritual collaborations with Native Americans uh, in Cuba, New Mexico, where he lived, in northern New Mexico. Were you part of these collaborations, and what were they like? So I was not part of them at all. My connection with uh, Rabbi Winkler was that he had an interest in moving out to the southwest. He wrote a letter to the synagogue in Los Alamos among many synagogues in the Rocky Mountain area and said he was interested in moving out. He wanted to do a scouting trip. Would anybody like to invite him for a talk or a Shabbaton or whatever? Los Alamos invited him to conduct a Shabbaton. I met him there. I said, if you move out to New Mexico, would you take me on as a student? And so early on, when he first came to New Mexico, he took me on as a student, and that process was completed a few years later. And he hadn't gotten so deeply into his connection with the Native American customs and, and, and until later. So I, I missed some of that. I've read about it. Um, I am, as you said, I, 
I'm a bibliophile. I certainly try to acquire a large library of books, and I try to have everything that he's published because he was my teacher, but uh, many of those things were published after I was ordained, and so I've learned about it, but only in that mechanism, not through firsthand experience. So I've never done a sweat lodge, for example. Right, right, or Schwitz. <laughs> or, well, I, I don't even think I've done a Schwitz. <laughs> <But>. <laughs> That's a Turkish bath, though, by the way. Right, right. Well, anyway, Jack, unfortunately we're out of time. So Jack Schlachter, a PhD physicist who worked at Los Alamos National Laboratory in New Mexico for over three decades and also an ordained rabbi. This has really been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for coming on to Delving In. I want to thank you, Stuart. You obviously did all your homework and are very well versed on these topics and, and did a great job of feeding me things that would help me figure out what to say. Thank you. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.